From Chagdagumpa Riggs and Lane, this is Listen, Contemplate, Meditate, a podcast featuring a range of teachings from the Buddhist tradition presented by Lamas of Chagdagumpa Foundation. Our website is chagdagumpa.org. The topic of Sangha is really one that's dear to my heart because the Sangha is really an entry point in my process of of entering the Buddha Dharma, it was through meeting practitioners, the open gates for me that I was able to connect with lamas and to really enter the path and feel the companionship of the path. When I met Rinpoche, then in Nepal, there were a lot of students around to Westerners who would come and go. And we came to the United States in 1979, and for a whole year he was here and he would teach, but he really didn't meet the people who would be his heart students. And it wasn't until we moved to, he moved actually before I did, to Oregon in 1980 that he started meeting people like Lama Zangpo and um, Lama Tsering, Norbu, and uh, a whole group of people who really became the extension of his body. They were the body of Sangha, and they were the, those who carried out his activity. And from that point, it started out with very few people. Uh, it blossomed. The difference of meeting those few people at that time, and the year before, when we had, he had taught many different people, but none of them were really his heart students. Um, it's just phenomenal. And, um, and so it's been precious. So then Sangha in Tibetan is Gedun, as you know, which means those who like virtue. And... Uh, there is the infallible Sangha, which is the 10th level bodhisattvas, who receive the teachings of Sambhogakaya and are in a state of just great purity. And there's the fallible Sangha. And um, a lot of our, our process in the Dharma is dealing with the fallibilities of the Sangha. <laughs> What do you do with these people who are traveling on the path with you? And so that's kind of what I want to talk about tonight. When we think of Sangha, then anyone who has taken refuge in the Buddha Dharma is in the Sangha of, of Buddhists. And so this is a Buddhist Sangha that we hold in absolute veneration. And then beyond that, there's the closer Sangha, the Mahayana practitioners. And within that, are the Sangha Vajrayana practitioners, those who hold the Vajrayana vows and commitments. And within that, are those that you've taken empowerments with, your Vajra brothers and sisters. And as soon as you've taken empowerments and 
especially if you sit around the same teacher, then this relationship is primary. It supersedes every other relationship except the the teacher-student relationship. And it means that that it supersedes friendship and lack of friendship. It supersedes being lovers. It supersedes being married. It supersedes being parents. We start. We must see each other through the lens of sangha, no matter what other relationship we have to each other. And in a community like this, then we see that people come together. They fall apart. They have problems, and it uh, it resolves itself if they're able to maintain that strict samaya, vajra sister, vajra brother, then nothing can make that fall apart. So how is it that we're gathered together in this room? This is my theory. This isn't in the books. It's that, especially at the level of vajrayana and especially around a teacher, then all of us have had our aspirations in past lives. We've all made prayers, really strong prayers, that we'll meet again as a single mandala, and we're all making those prayers again, which means we'll meet again, 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 again. And so for that reason, we need to work out anything that's not going well, (laughs) because it's not finished until it's finished, and it's not finished until we're enlightened. And... uh, When we, we take the Mahayana vows, the Bodhisattva vows, then our whole path is the six perfections. And so in the Sangha, then this is like the primary arena in which we're able to practice those perfections in a kind of general way. The lens of our specific practice is even more concentrated. But in a moment-to-moment way, there's a lot of interaction with the Sangha. And so in terms of practicing the, the perfection of generosity, how do you do that? And the most obvious way is, is supporting each other materially, supporting each other through open-handedness, and, but more deeply, open-heartedness. Because we understand that we've all come together not as enlightened beings, but as people working toward enlightenment. And so there's going to be a series of changes that everybody is in pro- process. Lama Dreamit, you know, says it really well. Well, you're a work in progress. I used to say, you're a piece of work. <laughs> but now I'm changing. <laughs> and our generosity is in allowing a person to grow. You know, it's a great thing that people do when they think, okay, I've sized this person up. I've got their number. I'm a quick study. And this is a sign of their character. And they think of, like, one thing that they did. 
And if it's something that was good, then sometimes they're disappointed after. And if it's something that's bad, then they maintain this resentment and they start seeing everything in terms of that. What you really have to do is allow that person space to grow. And in community, it's not so easy. Because we're together. Rinpoche says it's like you take a bunch of beautiful statues, you put them in a bag, and it's bonk, bonk, <laughs> bonk. And uh, Rinpoche and now Lama Jimit following him, he seemed to attract you know, really hard-headed people. Stubborn people, <laughs> people with definite personalities, people who are not the easiest, independent people, <laughs> Irish people. <laughs> and so it's like, how do you get all these people to work as a team? How do you get them to, like, allow some of that individuality to subside in the moment. And it's, it's through spaciousness. It's through aspiration. And when it really works well, you know, sometimes in retreat, it's like one body, or sometimes in work projects. I imagine there were moments on the stupa where everything is like a, an unseen, invisible head and just hands. You know, that, this is what we mean by the activity of the Lama. It's like the Lama's blessing is manifesting this. We're the manifestation of the Lama. And um, then it goes really well. And sometimes it doesn't go well. And sometimes we are in a, a, a phase in which our minds are really difficult. We're, we're having to work through the poisons that we've harbored for countless lifetimes, and everybody's, we're naked and amidst 30 people. They see it. They, you know, they see it because we interact with them, and to live amidst a bunch of clairvoyance, it's really not... <laughs> it's really not easy sometimes. And... Um, In my own process of Sangha, there's been things that have helped along the way. One is like recognizing the inspiration that everybody shares in terms of Rinpoche and now of Lama Dreamit and the other Lamas, you know, that people share this inspiration. And so you can have a measure of trust that they will be able, they're, they're in progress, you know, that they're on the path. And... Um, I've often thought that, now that I think about the bardo all the time, that I would rather see any person in the sangha, the person who really likes me the least and is the most difficult for me to be around, than even my own loving mother and father in the bardo, because I would be able to rely on a person from the sangha in a way that my parents, even though they love me, are not reliable. It's a... When I started seeing that, then, then, then the appreciation blossomed. And then those moments of truly inspired activity were all together 
in a big puja, or we've accomplished a drupshan, or you know, the statue is made and now we've consecrated it, or we've had a great teaching. Yeah, there's moments where just as one taste, one mind, to experience that even one time in your life, and to experience it in the midst of a mandala, how great, how fortunate. Who has this on this planet? Only a very few, the elite. And then the knowledge that the Sangha is the body of the Lama, the activity manifestation of the Lama, that the Sangha is the protectors. You know, knowing this from the way the Sangha has protected Rinpoche's life, knowing this, that when I've had things said to me that I didn't want to hear, criticize me, even. (laughs) 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 That... uh, to understand that this came from somebody who is a dharma protector, that whether they were right or are not quite accurate on the specific issue, that it was my karma to hear this, and being able to take it in would protect my own path. This has been really useful. It's been made, enable me to hear what people are saying, like you don't know how to listen, or... It's really hard to listen to you. <laughs> and both of those things. Hearing that with the understanding that these are Dharma protectors. Yeah, and you could visualize. You see that they have fangs and bulging eyes and fieriness around them. But this really, really helped me a lot. In terms of practice, then when we do Vajrayana practice, We learn to do the development stage practice very, very fully. We learn to visualize and we learn to perceive until it becomes a very direct perception of everyone, all beings, as the display of the deity's mandala. And this is what's happening for me now because I'm teaching the same thing over and over and over again. And it becomes more and more evident to me to that the manifest nature of people as Chen Zi, for example, when I'm teaching Pawa, or Red Tar, to see the Sangha in terms of the deity. When you hold yourself as a deity and you perceive others as the deity, a whole categories of mistakes simply dissolve because there's a natural respect, a natural reverence there that is inviolate as long as you hold that perspective, the pride of the deity. And so anyone who practices in terms of vajrayana and fully practices the development stages of visualization and, and all the activities that we carry out as we are holding a visualization then in the, the time of meditation and afterwards, then we move differently in terms of those we encounter, especially our Vajra brothers and sisters. Then the Tara practice particularly, 
is instructive in how to to deal with other people, to in our interaction, to try to inspire or to conduct ourselves in a way that we inspire the four kinds of devotion. And the first of those aspects of devotion is friendship. And to think about what it means to be a friend, what it means to be reliable, what it means to be trustworthy. How, if you're a friend, then you maintain good intention, devoid of malice toward everyone you encounter, but in the Sangha, particularly in, toward other beings in the Sangha, your Sangha brothers and sisters. And this friendship in the Sangha is a very high thing. It's uh, in, the, in the urgent prayer. It says, may we, the Sangha, have fellowship. Actually, the Tibetan word there is intimacy. But it seemed a little bit too personal. And so at the very beginning, we didn't really go for that translation because it, it was too close. But think about it. We all know each other through and through, really. We, can, we know each other at the most vulnerable, our spiritual selves, our parent to others, our highest aspirations, how we meet them, how we fail to meet them, is clearly apparent to others. And so to hold others in friendship and not betray that friendship, not to talk about someone in a gossipy way, not to backbite and slander someone. We can all say things that are true about each other. And if we heard what was being said about ourselves, then we would feel some pain about it. And so to refrain from that, that restraint, this is really like the cultivation of discipline, moral discipline in the six perfections. And the, the being there to be reliable. And so in terms of friendship, as a community, then we help each other along. You know, we help each other in our work. We help each other in times when words give comfort. We help each other when people are going through crises. Uh, we offer all of that. And then if someone really doesn't need any of that in the moment, we help each other through prayer and meditation, that kind of support where you really are deeply intent that the other person progress, that you really rejoice in their virtue, that you don't allow your mind to slip into jealousy and competition. This is the ruination of, of practitioners, that they, instead of practicing well themselves, dedicating completely, standing there completely empty, uh, and then being able to rejoice in the accomplishment of others. It's like the mundane kind of competitive, getting ahead, really goal-oriented. This sabotages the moment-to-moment -moment interactions of the Sangha. It doesn't mean that we can't do the very best we 
we we can the taking of a practice and practicing it to its fullest you know so that you can demonstrate something we don't want to be satisfied with a low level of dharma because people around us are not practicing with their whole heart we want to demonstrate something but clearly every day many times a day to dedicate not to hold it as a thing or some spiritually materialistic object to simply offer the positive energy that we gain from our practice to all beings and rejoice if the immediate benefit goes into the sangha and other people can progress that realization that positive energy this is great this is like the reason that the lama is here that you will be able to to do this yourself this fulfills their their high intention that we ourselves become embodiments of practice be good friends to each other that doesn't mean being buddies a lot of times being buddies in an ordinary way you know, all that talk all that palling around this really takes up practice time you're a better friend if you support the person's other person's practice and if you demonstrate your own practice and if you maintain really pristine intention toward others this is really being a friend and then the second aspect of devotion is that of being a mother and all of us again you know we enter the the path with a measure of compassion and a measure of meditative realization some have great compassion and they they enter the dharma and they they need to find meditation to to be able to extend and make their compassion really pervasive others have meditation they have concentration and and clairvoyance even and they need to to ground themselves in compassion in order to make those qualities useful and beneficial and so the idea of motherly the the devotion inspired by a mother then a mother has served us a mother has offered her very body to us has taught us and so we have devotion toward our mothers then we then turn that around and offer that same motherly maternal concern to the other members of the sangha when they're sick caring for them not just thinking oh they'll get through it when they have difficulties caring for them like a mother does for her only child this kind of compassion uh when they're dying serving them and so we all see the limits of that because in a way that takes a great deal of time as well it takes great deal of commitment to serve others and the only way that you can really do it 
when you have high goals is to integrate those goals into the service that you offer others. At each moment you realize that that the compassion that you feel, this development of compassion, then ultimately, however you're able to manifest it in the Sangha toward all beings, then this is your training until it becomes completely all-encompassing, completely pervasive. And then the third aspect of instilling devotion is that of a sovereign. This means that we're able to protect others. And this is really one of the primary meanings. This is the meaning of protectors, to when someone is moving toward non-virtue, to correct them. This doesn't always mean speaking. We can pray that they'll see it themselves, or we can demonstrate something different. And we can pray that, that it arises for them not to go the wrong way. And we'll see in the Sangha, people, you know, our Vajra brothers and sisters, becoming wayward at times, losing the thread, losing sight of their own goals. And so whatever we can do to support their goals, helping them clarify it, listening to them, then this nudging back onto the path of virtue is a function of a, of a sangha. It's a function of a sovereign to provide that. We have been given this great protective mandala. What can get past us? those prayer flags, what can get past these, these, these deities? This practice mandala on the other side, on all sides we have protection. And for us, then we want to be able to protect others. We don't want them to drown in the ocean of samsara, to leave the path. And so we hold them with our prayers, with all of our intention. One never, ever loses hope, loses connection. In Vajrayana, we pray that whoever has good connection or bad connection, that it will be maintained, that it will never be lost. It's better for a person to have bad connection with Vajrayana than to have no connection because the practices are dedicated to them again and again. Some of the most inspiring moments in my Dharma history is seeing people who really broke with Rinpoche come back and repair it. To me, this is like the most wonderful thing Really, we can't give up on anybody. If we give up on anybody, then we've violated our bodhisattva vow. We can never give up. Then we need to, to use the four powers of purification every, every day. We need to look back and 
wherever really in Vajrayana, wherever you violated your pure view of the other person as a deity, then you've had samaya impairment to a little degree. Wherever you you've seen things through an ordinary lens in a mundane way, then there is a slight samaya impairment. And so to progress to the highest realization in Vajrayana, we have to, to mend this all the time by using the four powers of purification every night, looking back, looking over the interactions that we had. And pretty soon it's obviously not worth it to maintain conflicts and resentments, to speak harshly, uh, to create waves of energy, because we know that we're going to have to gather it up and purify it. So then, why drop a mud ball in our own glass of water? <laughs> <laughs> then the fourth way of inspiring devotion is that of a lama, and this means gaining realization and acting, conducting oneself with great clarity and compassion. You know, transcendent compassion, compassion that's really accurate. And, um, yeah, there's not so much I need to say about that because you have wonderful examples. But if you turn this around, what I've been thinking about and wanting to teach is like turn it around and think about it. If you approach your Lama, and what happens is the lamas are, you know, mostly interesting people with good stories and fun to be around. And if we approach them as a friend, then they usually are friendly. Uh, some aren't, but most are. <laughs> and uh, so then that's what you'll get, is friendship. And if you go to a lama and you want his or her maternal compassion, and you tell them your story, and it's, you know, you'll get that maternal compassion, that advice, that direction. And um, that's useful too. And if you go to a Lama and you ask them for protection, uh, they'll pray for you, they'll surround you with protection. But if you go to a Lama as a Lama, then you're really going with the idea that you are, want their realization, you want their, to be able to embody their compassion. And so this means that you have a commitment to practice the path yourself. And this is what's most useful. So then, if you, you have a connection to your Lama, then this is the way to use it, not to waste it too much on, on the friendship interactions and not to waste it too much on the, the, the motherly offspring needs that we have. And uh, now with Chajit Rinpoche, it's like now he, he really wants people to come to him as a Lama. You know, he's listened first to the stories for his whole life, and he's sympathetic to the stories. And he's provided immense protection. And when people needed specific protection, 
then he would provide it. And he's a, he's a good friend to people. He's really loyal. But finally, in the end, there's no time for all of that. There's really not so much time. There's like time to impart realization, which means that whoever comes, they need to be willing to practice. That what worked before, when they were at a different stage, it won't work so well now, because it's a wasted opportunity. And there's only like a little time left to, to, to train people, to really show them to work with their mind. And so it's like a tremendous relief to him that, to, to have created this little sangha of lamas, you know, to the, the people behind him now are supporting in the way that he has. They're the friends, they're the, the mothers, they're the, the protectors. And uh, then he can just be a lama, you know, to, to stay with the pith instructions. But when you are dealing with Lama Dreamit or any of the other lamas, you need to think that whatever has come together it doesn't stay together. The bond between teacher and student, this transcends lifetime after lifetime after lifetime, but the specifics that we've gathered with so much virtue and so much merit, so much aspiration, this won't hold. Either he will die or you will die. And so don't waste your opportunities. Don't waste too much time with your stories. Don't waste too much time with your needs and your lesser desires. Stay with the essence. And then by doing that, then you'll be able to provide yourself, to provide for others. So that, that's something that I really, that comes from my heart. Because I see a lot of people who come to Rinpoche particularly, and he's always been so accessible, you know, just you know, wasting a moment that would allow them to deepen their practice on mundane concerns. We have to do it ourselves. We have to want to do it ourselves. We have to have fire in the belly to do it ourselves, to, to practice, to gain realization, to be able to benefit, to repay the kindness of our mothers and the arena of the Sangha, to be amidst people with the same aspiration. How great, how wonderful. Then the other thing that's helped me a lot in dealing with Sangha issues is I know, and I know that the, the, at least the old Sangha is not so real, that we're all participating in an illusion here. It, this is something a long time ago, Lava Dreamit and I used to talk about, 
that really we were creating all of this, you know, this, this whole Torah house and everything else. It was almost like a slate of hand. It wasn't like the, the essence. The essence was the intention behind it, the intention to gain realization, the intention to provide for others. It was like the actual place, the actual, you know, all of it. It's like a, a beautiful illusion that creates benefit, and we want it to last for generations. You know, that's what I think about all the time in Brazil, how to make it last, how it's not going to be an empty temple. Who's going to take over? Who can do this practice? And, and where are they coming from? It's not as clear there as it is here. Uh, you know, here people are really like gaining training. It's so heartening. There it's, it's like still like a little bit stuck in the story, except for a few people. But knowing that this is really an illusory display, that it's come together and it has its moment, and certainly, for sure, at some point, it won't be here. But still, while it's here, useful. And this Sangha, then, as we are gathered here, then we have our own moment of coming together, interacting. And it's not so real. Everybody has like their whole spectrum of emotions, changing, changing, changing. Your whole spectrum of circumstances, changing, changing, changing. All of your relationships, you know, on a mundane level, changing, changing, changing. You come together and uh, participate and do it as well as possible. But still, you don't really buy into it is an inherent reality. It's like what lasts is the, the ongoing intention, the realization of, of actual Buddha nature underneath that. Then with the Sangha, it's like some people are in a state where they're really able to, to experience their own Buddha nature, and their obscurations are very thin. Their Buddha nature is more obvious. Others are like in thicker layers of obscuration. When somebody's in the thin layers and somebody who's in the thick layer come together, then if in that interaction maybe some of the layers are removed spontaneously, that anyone who gains realization is able to penetrate layers and layers. And so knowing that it's only layers, that it's not, not real, not so real, that it's illusory, and that out of compassion that we want to create the best illusion possible, the most beneficial illusion possible, but still it's not so real, then there's a lot of spaciousness. And spaciousness is really important so that you don't end up fixed and some holding to a reality, even if it's a good reality, 
that tightness, the grasping at it, the reification of it as real, it makes us go wrong every time. It's what makes jealousy in the Sangha, and it makes you know, desires in the Sangha, selfish desires. It's what makes anger. We're holding something. And so allowing the mind to just settle and see the, the illusory display of it, and knowing that others have that same perception, it's almost like there's such a joy in that. It's, it's almost like you want to laugh for joy. It's fun. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any questions? I don't have so much more to say. It's so precious, though, and to to be together here and wherever I sit. I'm just so moved. These people who have come together. We, and I'm really fortunate to also be able to teach at times in Sujo Rinpoche's Sangha. And uh, it's another very precious group of people who, who have a, who've gathered, who've been gathered together by the dragnets of a very powerful teacher. And again, you know, a very diverse group of people. And to, to see the potential of manifestation there and here and wherever I go, the people really putting aside the worldly concerns and getting to the essence. It's very, very, very dense to be around people who are not spiritual practitioners as compared to being around Sangha. It's, uh, it's more a field of arena of compassion, whereas in the Sangha, it's an arena of realization. I just wanted to say something about Guru Yoga. When you were saying how some people come to the Lama for protection and some people come for motherly compassion and love, and some people come for the other reason, and some people come to the Vajra Guru wanting enlightenment. And how Seems to me, no matter what kind of practice a person is doing, they're really doing guru yoga because they're doing the practice they really ask them to do, and they're doing it because they want to gain the qualities of realization that they see in their guru or their gurus. And so, I wondered if you could talk about guru yoga from that. 
I'm not, I'm not quite clear. Sort of like maybe. Like, What's uh, your question? Yoga has nothing to do with the proximity of the guru. What? Pride has nothing to do with the proximity of the guru, of the mama, the physical, like. Yeah, that helps. For example, like. Oh, sorry. For example, um, some people feel their guru yoga is like cleaning the guru's room or serving the guru. And some people think their guru yoga is giving money to the guru. And some people think their guru yoga is doing work the guru wants them to ask them to do. And some people think guru yoga is meditating and uniting their mind to the guru's lesson. It's all of the above. So, I mean, yeah. it's meditating while you're making offerings, and it's meditating while you're serving, and it's meditating. Uh, what it basically is, is, is the guru. We have all really left ourselves, I started to say this last night, a legacy of faith. And to the degree that we've created faith in our past lifetimes, then when we meet the teacher, I mean, then, then we, our faith will blossom. Um, whether it's... With, then... If we, in our past lifetimes, have cultivated doubts, if we've, we've undermined or sabotaged our faith, if we've had negative view of the teacher and the teacher's sangha, because if you have a negative view of a sangha, it's like for Rinpoche, when people have a negative view of a student, he can be really tough. But somebody else, having a negative view of one of his students, it, it hurts him physically then if they have like this sort of negative view cultivated through ordinary analysis and, and all the rest of it, then, then at the time of death, I mean, if they, even if they have merit, when they meet teachers in the future lifetime, then they will have skepticism and difficulties, and it, it will be hard for them to have faith. And um, so... If they're fortunate, then they meet very patient lamas who are able to interact with them as friends sometimes and as motherly, maternal beings sometimes. And, you know, all of us, all of us take this from the lama. You know, we all at times need motherly compassion and friendship and all of it. it it's not like any one of it is wrong. It's like, but none of it is except practicing ourselves and gaining realization, really utilizes the opportunity of the Lama to the fullest. And so then, in terms of Guru Yoga, what do you do if you have the, the greatest practitioners, the greatest Lamas have the greatest Guru Yoga? Because they have 
through the faith that they've cultivated over lifetimes, then they can see the Lama. They can they can start seeing through the the Lama's illumination. It starts to help them remove the darkness of their own mind, and when that happens, it becomes more and more apparent the qualities of the Lama. Um, it's it doesn't always go smoothly. I've had times when things were extremely dark between Chaturanga, I hate to admit it, but between Rinpoche and I. Um, when I was new to Dharma and I was in Nepal, then there was a t- period of time when everything seemed black. And um, fortunately, my first teacher started me doing Vajrasattva, and I was beginning to understand that Rinpoche was Vajrasattva. <laughs> and then one day, you know, I saw him as Vajrakalaya. It was like one of my rare visionary experiences. And so then I, I, I knew something. But that didn't stop me from being really, as I was dredging up my own angry tendencies, seeing him to, uh, through the lens of my own anger. And Rinpoche himself, uh, if you are looking through the lens of anger, then there'll be a lot to, to blame there. You know, he's not ordinary. He wasn't being conventionally nice to me and uh, at all. For some months, yes. Then for a year and a half, no. <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Forget it. <laughs> and uh, finally, you know, I left. And I, uh, I went to Japan. And uh, then all these, yeah, I don't know, all these Dharma War stories. Who wants to hear them anymore? <laughs> These French people had done a tarot reading for me, and they said, Ah, you will go to Japan. It will be a meeting of East and West. It will be a great opening for you. You will have the best time. <laughs> I got there. It's hot, humid, horrible. It's like being on an alien planet. So I wrote Rinpoche, and I said, yeah, Here I am in Japan. Yeah. Trying to earn a little money so he can come to the West. It's a really disrespectful letter. And uh, it, it, could you say a few prayers to me, for me? And uh, then it was like having a wish city. Anything that I wanted, I got. And I didn't have very great wishes either. <laughs> I had really low level wishes. <laughs> they were all answered. <laughs> and uh, then, yeah, yeah, sure. It was the meeting between East and West, you know. And then it was time to come to the United States and, and meet Rinpoche. It was, you know, I got a, a message that said, go to the Los Angeles airport and wait for me. And no time, date, nothing. <laughs> 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 I was like, 
I had to think about it, you know. I had a really good time in Tokyo by that time. And uh, then, so then I finally, yeah, I thought, okay, there's a reason why all of this happened. At least I knew that. At least I had done that much practice that I recognized that there was a source that had turned around my bad experience to my good experience. So then finally I went to Los Angeles. And uh, <laughs> I hadn't been home in America for, oh, over two years. And I didn't know anybody, and I didn't want to call my parents. And finally, I called, reached a mother of a friend, of a Dharma friend, who got me connected to my Dharma friend. said, oh, yes, you know, just wait in the airport. Mamacha is coming tomorrow. And that was the beginning of another chapter of the saga. <laughs> but it doesn't always go well. You know, there are times when doubt arises. You, and you can always justify your doubt in some way. You know, the Lama will be nicer to somebody else than you. Or the Lama doesn't give you the teachings. Or the Lama has some sort of unconventional lifestyle. Or, you know, it's like that. When you're, when you're mad at them, then you'll just see it in a very ordinary way. If you're training your mind, then you look back and you see that it's your own mind. It is never useful to blame outwardly. That this is like your your chance to purify karma. And it's the same, really. You can work within the Sangha in the same way. That's what I meant, by seeing the Sangha as honorable Dharma protectors. That way, whatever they bring to you, then instead of blaming them, then, hmm, then you see them in a pure way and see why you're reacting that way. And so then Guru Yoga really, like we talk about Guru Yoga as though it's going to be one fell swoop. And sometimes in an empowerment or sometimes in a teaching or sometimes in just a, an odd moment, then we have this overwhelming faith. Or in retreats, you go through uh, days and days where practice doesn't seem very productive. And then one day it's really like there's a great opening and you know that this is a blessing of the Guru. You know it from your heart, and you just dissolve. And then you're on a higher plateau of practice. And then it'll come again that you don't have productive practice, and you have to just, as Rinpoche says, keep going. There's one Dzogchen retreat, and people would come in, and they'd want to tell the story. They go, keep going. <laughs> More or less, get out. <laughs> People were not happy <laughs> with that advice. It wasn't very sympathetic, but it was really useful. And uh, it, then, so then those moments when the blessing of the Lama is really apparent, and you just like kind of melt and is like really warm and fluid then that's great. That helps you keep going. But there's going to be, we are here to dredge the very samsara of our beings. There's something else there. 
there is always something more. It's like that old blues song singer who used to say, never look over your shoulder because you don't know what's gaining on you. It's kind of like that. There's something there. <laughs> and <laughs> it's like, we can, it's, it's going to come up. And a lot of times, the, the Lama is going to call you on it. And worse is when they praise you. It's like, you, you get completely like used to criticism, and you need to do this, and you need to do this, and everything is criticism. Then one day they praise you. You go, what is this? Then <laughs> 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 you freeze, it's sort of like, you don't know what to do. And is it going to make pride, or you just don't move? It's not real. It's not real either. It's just like a moment. And um, it's really like we can't stop. We can't stop at some low level. We can't be satisfied until we are really able to be a part of the infallible Sangha and ultimately a Buddha, to be able to benefit beings on a vast scale. This means like really hacking away at the very roots of samsara in our mind, it takes a long time. It takes a skillful teacher. And as they're hacking at those roots, it's painful. We don't like it. I don't, we don't, it's, it's like, and so then a lot of times another thing that people do in terms is like they're afraid of like really blaming the teacher. And so then they'll blame his wife. His administrator, <laughs> his, his attendant, his, you know, they blame somebody in the Sangha because it seems safer there. But any real Lama will never accept that. It's like more painful because they, they, they see what's happening. It's really apparent. And so they'll work with it in some way. It's easiest if the person is a practitioner and you don't have to go through all the talk and explanations that you send them off to practice and then they are doing Vajrasattva and then it becomes apparent to them privately and it just dissolves. Or they are practicing Guru Yoga and suddenly they understand everything in a moment the whole blessings of the guru come forth and for one moment body, speech, and mind or vajra, body, speech, and mind free of obscuration and in that moment there's no separation then whatever was there before then it seems perfectly absurd and then there are also those little tendencies you know, the really hard ones that uh, sneak up on you like, you know, jealousy is really like a good one because it's like a cocktail of poisons. Yeah, it's like you're jealous because you're angry. You can't really rejoice in the other person's accomplishment or whatever, and you're jealous because you're proud and you feel like you know you're not being recognized, and you're jealous because you're grasping at something. 
this comes up in the Sangha, and especially in terms of the Lama. It's like they will make you jealous if they think you're jealous. They'll play it like an organ. And Vajra uh, <laughs> Kalaya is really useful in this case. <laughs> like any wrathful practice where you just take it and annihilate it until it's not real. But you can truly rejoice. And, and another person's accomplishment. And uh, also that you don't have to do that one. <laughs> They're going to do that job now. That's good. <laughs> That's useful. <laughs> yeah. Any other questions? <laughs> yeah. It's really wonderful when you come across the loving Sangha. Um it it um it happens in kind of surprising moments. Like Sojo Mubachari's Sangha is, is really loving, and they're like, people have been through it. You know, we're developing our history together. You know, as we work together, as we play together, mostly as we practice together, and deeper in retreat practice, where we really have a unity, a purpose, and, and activity, then there's like a precious history that evolves. And um, there's just a deep, deep tolerance, patience, uh, commitment to each other, that, that willingness to, to, to be really selfless, to sacrifice even self-interest to, in order that another person progress to give them all kinds of space so that they can, you can see them fresh in any moment that you're not defining them. We're all trying to escape this sort of self-defining characteristics, our negative ones, you know, this, that, and the other, all these limiting statements that we make about ourselves and the ones that are inflated, and this, this, and this as well. And uh, with the Sangha, if we give them, each person gives everyone space <coughs> so that they can evolve, and you just sort of check in lightly and see if they need anything, and then support it with practice and good intention, and then keep going, then really good, then not so much problem. If people who really love the same teacher, you know, there have been people who have been really difficult for me in the Sangha in the years in the past, and I was really difficult too, especially because of my tendencies of harsh speech, which I sometimes go, so. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I smell the breath of harsh speech. <laughs> and, and it's like, so I was really difficult myself for people. But, uh, really, for the people, the one thing I knew is that anybody who really loved you and betrayed, then it would go well. You know, in the end, it didn't, that there would be, that love would not be just Rinpoche the man, although that's very lovable, but that would be like a deeper love for Rinpoche the Buddha embodiment, and Rinpoche the manifestation of, of compassion. And so then, how can that not be wonderful and precious in my life to have people around him who have that kind of love and it's going to go well in terms of me too that we all share that and so then the personality thing just falls away it doesn't matter it's not so important and so I guess that's where I'll leave it don't have so much more to say this podcast is supported by the generosity and kindness of Chagdagumpa members and donors. If you're interested in becoming a member, making a donation, or if you want to learn more about Chagdagumpa, feel free to go to chagdagumpa.org.